0: Hey everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering. So please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Anything. Um, we are back and we're back to the regular. Uh, I know I've had a couple of guests on and I like having guests on. I think, I think you guys do too. You've given me a lot of good feedback and I really loved having Allison on last week. I could have talked to her forever about, you know, mental health stuff, relationships, uh, therapy, getting into that psychology. She's, it was just great. Did you guys think she was great? I hope you thought she was great because I really loved her. Um, but because she's so easy to talk to and we really got to chitty chatting, we didn't get through all the questions that I had selected. So don't worry, I'm going to get through them now and they'll be the first ones that I get through. But today we have, drum roll please, 10 questions total. Um, So I'll get through those, but I just want to check in. How is everybody doing? It's been really weird here in LA. Uh, our air is poison. That's what Sean and I call it, meaning that the parts per million is above what they believe is healthy for regular people to be out in. And so we haven't been going for our walks, which if you don't follow me on my regular channel um, or on my Instagram, I guess it would be more like it, is that's like our only real outing these days because we got the pandemic and such. And a lot of things in California are still very, very, very much closed. Um, but. Um, we usually would go for walks. And because of the air being poison, we haven't been able to do that. And so I've had to try to adapt my self-care. And I hope that you're doing that too, adapting it to make it work for what now is kind of our normal, unfortunately, for a little while. Uh, I, th- I believe things, I have faith that things will get better. But for right now, we have to kind of adapt. And so I can't help but want to make that office joke. It's an office reference. If you haven't watched The Office, I'm sorry. But it's great when he's like, going to teach uh, it's Michael is going to teach, <laughs> uh, what's his butt. I can't think of his name right now for some reason. Uh, the temp anyway, Ryan, he's going to teach him all of the top 10 business. I don't know his business strategies or his business. I don't even know what he calls it. I forget, but one of them is adapt, react, apt. And that just made me think of it when I was like the way we react and we adapt, apt. Um, okay, sorry, bad joke, because I messed it up and couldn't remember Brian's name for a minute. Okay, without further ado, you're not here for me to just BS and chitty chat like that. Let's get into your questions, because these are great. You guys always have great questions. And usually there's a theme, but because these are spanned over two weeks, I don't know if we'll see a theme. You guys let me know in those comments if you see a theme this year or this year, this week. Jesus, Jesus, Katie, get it together. Okay. Question number one says, hi, Katie, can your depression change over time? I've been depressed for about 10 years. My depression feels different now. I'm 22 to when I was younger, for example, around 15. It feels like my depression has grown and changed with me, if that makes sense. The symptoms are pretty much the same ones, but it just feels different. Is this weird or does this happen when dealing with long-term depression? Also, on that note, my old coping mechanisms, mainly writing poetry, aren't working anymore. And they used to be really effective and now I don't really know what to do or how to cope. Any tips on that? This is a great question. And the truth about mental illness in general is that, of course, it grows with us. We grow and develop and change, especially when we go from teen to adult. There's so much going on in our brain. And I don't even have all the time to talk you through it. Um, But actually, I could probably pull up an old doc of I did this talk for a a foundation that does things for teenagers and people who help teenagers like teachers, school counselors, things like that. And I was telling them and offering tips and tools and ways for them to best assist the teenagers that they help every day and work with every day. And so some of the research that I did for that was about brain development in teens. And essentially our prefrontal cortex, which is like the adult part of our brain, isn't fully functional yet. Our limbic system, which is fight, flight, freeze is part of our amygdala is like the king of the limbic system. It is fully formed and ready to go, right? Because it's a, it keeps us safe, make sure that we can do what we need to do. So our brain is just different and they believe that around 18, our brains finally are fully developed. Everyone's brain is going to be different, whether you feel like you're more mature or less mature, it doesn't matter. I just want you to know that there are adjustments that are happening in our brain from the age of 15 to 22 or the 10 years you feel like you've been struggling with this. So we're going to be different, not to mention that through research, we know that every se- seven years, our cells completely regenerate, meaning that we're like, we're every seven years, we're essentially a new person. So you could argue that point as well. If you don't believe me, look it up. It's really wild. It's crazy to think about. So those are just things that I would keep in mind and things that I like to think of when we have uh, a certain mental illness for a long period of time is that, of course, it's going to feel different because we are different okay? Depression affects everybody differently. And I'm always talking about this, right? There's a ton of different symptoms that we can experience and not experience depending on us and our situation, right? Like I... Uh, it can also be personality driven too. I want you to know that. And we can also change the way that we are. Like there were diff- definitely periods in my life where I was less confident or more outgoing, less outgoing, more confident, right? We kind of, depending on our, our level of development, we're going to be different people. And with regard to this question, going from teenage to adult is a huge difference. Like me at 15 to me at 22, leaps and bounds different, right? when I was 15, I was super self-conscious, right? Your body is developing. You have your first boyfriends, girlfriends, your first crushes, you go, you're dating. It's a weird time. That's difficult. And our hormones and everything's going wild. And then at 22, you're a little bit different. Things that were interesting to me back when I was 15 are not going to be interesting to me at 22. And I know I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know, but I just need to bring that up because when we're talking about depression and we're talking about the symptoms, even though they're like, and this question says the symptoms are still pretty much the same ones, but it just feels different. That's because you're different. And of course, they're going to affect us differently because our life is different. You know, 10 years is a huge difference from 15 to 25 if we're talking a full 10 from that to that those are huge differences not only in development, but maybe living on our own or having a roommate instead of just living with our parents. Maybe our parents were super triggering. maybe they were super supportive. All of these things and all of these factors we're gonna have to they're gonna weigh in on how we experience it, okay? So it's very normal for you to feel this way. And then I want to look at the question again. Um, yes, it does happen. that's not weird. but the old coping mechanism's not working anymore. again, it's because we're different. and I think, something that I want us all to kind of hopefully hear and acknowledge and absorb, if you can, is the fact that we do change, and that's great. We do grow, and that's amazing. Changing and growing are like the two components that make being a therapist even worthwhile and something that we would put our time into, because it's the belief that we can get better. We can do better. We can be a new person. I have the ability to do this. That's what we live in. And so when it comes to this, you've changed and grown. And so your depression has done the same. And that's why old coping mechanisms aren't working because we're not the same. So what I would, and my, I guess my advice on this is try different coping mechanisms. I have a wonderful video. It's called 25 Coping Skills. I offer up 12 uh, processing ones and 12 distraction ones and then ask the audience and all of you wonderful people have left comments with other coping skills that work for you. So the comments are filled with amazingly helpful things. So check that out. Try some new ones. It's very normal for coping skills. I've even had patients who I call it poop out because we talk about that when it comes. I know you're probably like poop out. That's a horrible name. But when we talk about uh, psychotropic medication, meaning antidepressants, antipsychotic, any kind of medication we take that's that's mental health related is called psychotropic medication. And when we are on, let's say, a Prozac or a Zoloft, and it just stops working all of a sudden, have anybody had that happen, where it's like, it's doing great, and I'm feeling better, and oh my God, it's improving my symptoms. All of a sudden, it doesn't anymore. And then we're like, well, now what? That's poop out. And that can happen for a lot of reasons. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a neurologist. You should talk to them to learn more about that. But we can also kind of overuse or get tired of or poop out from our coping skills and our coping mechanisms. I am always encouraging my patients to take another look at their coping skills, and add new ones in every six months or so, because we kind of get sick of them. And I don't blame you if it just doesn't work anymore. Sometimes we just need something different. So be curious about what could work for you if writing poetry used to help. Maybe right now, it's better for us to journal, and not actually turn it into poetry. Or maybe we need something very different where we're collaging or coloring or listening to music and putting together playlists. Maybe we need to do impulse logs. Maybe, I don't know, maybe we need to start a gratitude journal or something like that. There's all sorts of things we can do. So check out that video. I hope that, that helps. And overall, just to sum this up, because I know there's a lot here. It's normal for our symptoms to feel different. It's also normal for any of you out there who this is similar to yours, but a little, not, you know, not quite the same. It's also okay for our symptoms to completely change. I've had patients have, that happens all the time. So don't think any of that is weird. What's important is we communicate this to a professional. We are open to the you know, to trying out new coping skills and, you know, trying new things to start to feel better because we're going to need different things because we are completely different. And that is it's honestly a good thing. It means that we're changing and growing and we can use that to our advantage to overcome our depressive symptoms or whatever other mental illness or mental health issues we're struggling with at the time. I hope that that answers your question. I hope that's helpful. Feel free to, you know, ask other follow-ups for next week's, If if not. Question number two, I have this faulty belief that I'm not as good as everyone else. It is so deeply ingrained that I'm starting to witness myself sabotage myself, ok? So I'm starting to witness witness self-sabotage, no matter what I do. I start looking at myself and then to a person who does it well. And profusely try to compare myself, only to arrive at why even try? You're not going to do well. I think this is generally caused by my lack by lack of encouragement when I was younger. What can I do to challenge this faulty belief and stop self sabotaging? Now I have a great video, an older video, maybe two years old, three years. I don't know. Time's an illusion, but it's called How to Stop Self Sabotaging. Watch that video. Um, it hopefully will be really helpful. But I think that. So many first of all, this is very common. A lot of us don't believe in ourselves. And I agree with you. it probably did come from your younger days not having support or encouragement from your parents or you know, teachers, coaches, important adults in your life who are supposed to offer encouragement and support and help us, you know, develop and grow. So what we have to do is first recognize it, which I, I know that you already do, but I just want anybody else out there to like recognize when you're doing this note those thoughts, right? So you're saying like, you know, no matter what I do, I start. And then then when we start arriving at why even try, you're not going to do well. Maybe we have thoughts like you're, you always fail. You're, you're just so stupid and lazy. You're never going to be good at this. Like whatever those thoughts are, pay attention, start writing them down. In in CBT, like cognitive behavioral therapy, sorry, not just don't say the just acronyms, Katie, that's confusing. So cognitive behavioral therapy does a lot of thought logs and uh, thought records, they can call them a lot of different things. But it's essentially this, we want you to pay attention to what your thoughts are, not just let them float by because the longer, not the longer, but the more frequently we have these same thoughts, the more like quickly, they'll turn into beliefs, whether or not because thoughts are not beliefs and thoughts are not facts, by the way, just you need to hear that. Thoughts are not beliefs. They are not facts. They are just thoughts. However, if we take a thought and we ruminate on it, we think about it, and we, we have other thoughts associated with this thought, and then we've created this whole storm of this thought, then we could potentially start to look for ways to prove that thought. And then it turns into a belief. So how do we stop this? We do the opposite. We have this thought. You want to acknowledge that you have it. And then this is where the new muscle it needs to grow is then I need to look for evidence that does not support that thought. Easier said than done. I know it's hard, but you don't have any evidence really to support that you aren't any good or like you're going to, you know, you're self-sabotaging, right? And you, you think you're not as good as anyone else. We don't actually have evidence to support that. We just do things that perpetuate this belief. So we're looking for things that support that and then acting on those. And I want you to do the other thing where we look for things to support us being great, us being successful, us doing well. And then, you know, we focus on those things. And I know, you're like, Katie, I think I am horrible. And how am I supposed to look for good things when all I think are bad things? Don't worry, I got you on that too. So I've talked about bridge statements. I talk about bridge statements all the time. Bridge statements are very important, and they're going to be important here. So when we are tracking those thoughts, those thoughts like why even try you're not going to do well. And I'm just making up more now like you're a lazy son of a bitch. Why are you so stupid? We all have these negative thoughts. I have them too. They exist. Like today I was supposed to prepare another video and I have all my points and I've done all the research and I just couldn't do it you guys. I just didn't I was just tired. I couldn't focus the way I wanted to. And so I could I could tell myself a bunch of shitty things. I could say Katie you're so lazy, why didn't you get that done? Uh, 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 da, 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 da. We have to stop it. I recognize those thoughts are coming and what do I do? I use my bridge statement. So I say it's possible that I'm not as lazy as I think I am. And I personally, bridge statements for me look more like, and maybe this is helpful for those of you who the original way I describe bridge statements don't work for you either. But bridge statements to me are, you know what, it's not the end of the world that I didn't get that done. I have done a lot of things over the past like month. And then I look for my evidence, right? So I'm like, hey, I turned in my manuscript on Monday, I turned in the last little bits of it, and got through the edits of the first half of the book on Friday. So there's my evidence. I'm not lazy. I am productive, right? I'm fighting back. And then my bridge statements go into like, you you can actually do it tomorrow. It'll be okay. And you know what? You did your best and you've been doing lots of stuff. So it's kind of that like positive self-talk without it being like, you're amazing, Katie. This is you're so productive. Like I can't say that. I'll immediately go into a shame spiral or like embarrassment or try to it just doesn't work. And then I'll look for things that are negative. So instead, I just logically try to talk myself out of it. So maybe that helps you. But for a lot of us, the bridge statements are like, it's possible that I could be good at this. I don't really know. I've never tried. I'm open to the the thought and maybe belief that something could work out for me, that I maybe could be good at something. I don't know what that something is, but I'm open to the thought that it could. So we're going to have to use our bridge statements to kind of talk back to this, like why even try? Because you could even say, you know, I I need to try because otherwise I just keep feeling like shit. So I'm open to trying at the very least, even if I find out I'm not good at something. I don't know, give those things a try. Because again, try so much try. But with those two, kind of that two pronged approach, I think you will get back on track and start feeling a little bit better. And then again, watching that older video I have about self sabotage, there's other tools and tips in there. And we all struggle with self talk sometimes and thinking that we're not going to be good enough and we compare ourselves to other people. Another thing I would encourage you while you're doing your thought tracking and like thought log, thought record, whatever you want to call it, I would also notice when you're comparing yourself to someone else and keep track of that. And then I would force you like, you know, you're forcing yourself, not that I can force you, but you know what I mean? Like force yourself to to focus back on something else because we don't have any control over other people and looking out for validation or for support or for, uh, I don't even know, I guess it's just a comparison factor for, for this person in particular. But when we're doing that, we're taking away from ourselves and we're we're giving up our power to feel good. We're putting it out into the world instead of holding it in and saying that I'm okay because I know that I'll be okay or I'm good at this because I believe in myself. And you'll get there, but just recognizing when you're looking out to someone else and like distracting yourself like that's where the cope another coping skill might come in or something you could watch that video about 25 coping skills to help pull your brain back because the thing about our brain that's great and the reason that we can change so easily and so wonderfully is because of neuroplasticity like our brain can change it develops we learn new tricks you can teach not do- an old dog new tricks it's amazing but that means also that when we're doing unhealthy things, it easily, it quickly and easily learns how to do that more efficiently. And our thoughts will become so, they just get there so quickly. So it's like, bad thing happens, or I don't do as well as I thought I would do on something. My brain is so comfortable going right over to that negative self-talk saying, I told you not to try. You're such a loser. Why'd you even try to do this? There, everyone else is always so much better than you. How many times do we have to go around and around?" it just shit talks immediately. It's so comfortable. It's so used to that. And that rut that is gone, I've talked about this before, like a balloon, like your brain's like a balloon filled with sand and these like thoughts to actions are like marbles that we're rolling across and it like makes that rut in the sand. So neuroplasticity means that happens, but then we have to use neuroplasticity again to our benefit and pull it out of that rut into it and make a new one that's more healthy. And it's difficult and it'll want to go back to that other thing cuz it already knows how to do that and it's so used to it but we just have to pull it out and make it go down that more healthy path which is you know i'm going to give it a try i might not be amazing at everything but but i think i could be kind of good at this maybe that less less self-deprecating more supportive more open and yeah those are my thoughts on that i hope that's helpful i think a lot of us struggle and i also do want to throw in the fact that working in therapy to heal kind of what happened to you when you were younger, um, could really be beneficial as well. So be open to that, hopefully. And I think that could get you get you there too. Okay, question number three. Hi, Katie, is there any advice that you can give to help people who have no way of affording therapy right now? I lost my job due to COVID and haven't been able to find another one. I've dealt with anxiety issues for a long time. And prior to COVID, I would try and mask these issues by keeping myself busy, either working a lot or spending time with friends and extended family. But over the last six months, I haven't been able to do any of that. And I feel like I'm really struggling. I still live with my parents currently, and my family has a lot of communication issues. Anytime I try to talk to them and open up about things, I always just get shut down, which has led to me not wanting to open up to anyone. Lately, I've been experiencing a lot of anxiety issues and panic attacks. I can get so bad. I can't eat or sleep some days. And I'm just exhausted both mentally and physically. Okay, so first of all, I'm so sorry. I know a lot of people have lost jobs. And I have friends who are uh, flight attendants, and they're very worried right now. And I'm, I'm so sorry for you. But I'm glad. First of all, I'm glad that you have a place you can live. I'm glad you're still with your parents. And also, I want to throw it out there. If any of you are going through this, having a tough time, feeling stressed about the fact that you've lost your job and you feel shame or embarrassment about having to move back home. You don't let that hang in your head. There's no room for that here. You know what you're doing? You're surviving. We're in a a pandemic. It's unprecedented what's happening right now. Things are crazy. You have to take care of yourself and you're doing what's best. So I want you to reframe those thoughts. Don't allow them to live in your head any longer. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. We're all just surviving we usually are thriving. But right now, we're just like white knuckling trying to get through just holding on for dear fucking life. So you do what you got to do. And as long as you're taking care of yourself and doing the best you can, I get get 10 gold stars from me. Okay. Now onto this question. For low cost therapy, there are a couple of things we can do. So first of all, uh, there are free resources when it comes to peer support. So if we can't afford anything, or if we just need to help right now, you can text to the crisis text line 741741. I believe it's available, the US, Canada and the UK. I don't know where this person is from. But I just wanted to throw that out there that you can just reach out to a crisis counselor. They are trained. They are not licensed professionals, but they are trained and the training I've, I've looked through it. I believe it's very thorough and good. And I like, I love Crisis Text Line. You guys know I've, I've partnered with them over the years um, just to help get the word out that they exist. So 741741. Another great peer support resource is 7cups.com. They do have an option, I believe, to pay to see a therapist, like a licensed professional, but they have peer support otherwise. And also, we have our Facebook group, Katie. So those are peer support resources. Then when it comes to affording therapy, I do know that Talkspace and BetterHelp, which are two of the largest, I believe, online therapy resources um, out there, they do video, they do uh, texting, you can text on your phone, they do email, there's a lot of different plans that you can pick. I know that they're offering free or very, very low cost therapy right now, you just have to apply for it. So when you go into either uh, Talkspace or BetterHelp, And you are filling out the form to start it, there is a way to apply for assistance, for financial assistance. And so that could mean that based on your income, if you have zero income, maybe you pay zero dollars. I don't know because everyone's different, but I've heard from some members of our community that they pay about $10. And so maybe that's something that you could do. That's just another way to, to get some support for very low cost. And also another thing you can ask your therapist if you have one. If you don't, you can reach out to one, but you can ask your therapist if they'll, they'll offer you a sliding scale. Now I have seen patients over the years for half of my, my fee or like $20. I had patients for a little while I saw for free because they lost their job. Therapists work with you. So just ask them, talk to them. It's okay. You can ask if they work on a sliding scale. You can tell them you lost your job. You can even ask if this is something you're even comfortable with, you can say, hey, you know, I can't afford anything right now. But could I pay full price once I get a job again? Like, you know, because oftentimes, then I've I even did that one of my patients, her mom had I forget if she lost her job or was the dad lost job. Anyways, I saw her for free for a while. And then the mom I'd already been seeing her on a lower fee anyways. And then when her I think it was our mom, got her job again. She was like, I want to pay full fee and like pay you back. And you could do that. You could run a tab if your therapist is comfortable. Those are things you can ask for, talk about, and negotiate. And most therapists, we leave room in our schedules to see people for free or for a very low fee. We do work on sliding scales. We just can't do it for everyone. And so, you know, if those slots are already filled, they'll tell you like, I'm sorry, I can't do that right now. Because, you know, we have bills too. Um, but those those are just some of the ways And I really think the online stuff right now is just it's easier. I know they're offering financial assistance. I know people have gotten it for very cheap, if not free, maybe. Um, That's what I would try to do. So check it out. And I think we put links in the description to different resources because I partnered with BetterHelp uh, back in the day. And I still think they're great. I know there was some kind of people are so crazy. I remember people online saying they thought that it was a scam that I had run that I was the CEO. What? No. They reached out. It was a brand deal with a video and it's helped a lot of people. It helps people in my family. I have friends that use it and many of you have used it. And that's, I don't know why people, people are crazy online. Like you can clearly just look up who created it and how and why. That's all. It's easy. Just do it. It's easy research. So those are the ways that I would try to get therapy without having to spend a lot. Okay. Question number four. Hi, Katie. I hope you're doing well. Thank you. I am. What do you tell clients when they want to give up? I've had so many periods where I've discovered a lower rock bottom than I thought than I could ever imagine. And every time I think it really does get worse, I find myself these days wanting to just stop trying, stop fighting my depression and anxiety and just let myself go. Is this common to feel this way? And how do you encourage clients when they're so tired of fighting and cannot find hope in their lives? Yeah, this happens, unfortunately, quite a bit. And I hear it a lot from a lot of you out there in the audience. Because life can be shit, right? Depression and suicidal thoughts just completely wipe out any positivity, any thoughts of things getting better. It just steals them from us and locks us in like a dark hole where we can't even see out of it, right? And so what I tell my clients is, What are things that you used to look forward to? So I try to dig into what we used to, what used to motivate us, or what we were excited about. These don't even have to be things that we are excited about. What are things like, for instance? I had a patient many years ago who really struggled with this, and the suicidal thoughts were like constant, and it was a battle. Excuse me, had to burp. Um. Anyway, she, one thing that we got, there were actually two things. There were two things that she could latch onto and be excited about at least a little bit and things that she was looking forward to. And these two things were, number one, she wanted to be there for her sister when she graduated high school. It was important to her. I don't, you know, that was just one of the things that she put on the list. And the next was that she didn't want to leave her dog on its own. Those were her two things. I'll take it. Those were things that she was, you know, it was important to her, something that she cared about. And she cared about her sister. And she wanted to be there for that thing. Luckily for us, that thing was like a a year or two out. I think her sister's graduation like a year or two out. And her dog needed support each and every day. And she didn't have family close by. So she couldn't just like drop the dog off with anybody either. And then we built from there. So what is it about your sister that you find so great? And why is it that you want to be at her graduation? And we just got into that. And that that that's the start. That's like the weirdest that little there's a little teeny spark in this dark hole that our depression anxiety has put us in. But that graduation and wanting to be there was a little teeny spark. And so we gotta like fan the flame, like gently. We don't want to push, you know, snuff it out. So I would ask her, I'd be like, so when when your sister graduates, is there gonna be a party? Like tell me about it. And so I would have her tell me about it. So something that I would encourage you to do is to journal about what it is about that thing that makes it so wonderful and why you want to be there for it. These could be all sorts of things, you guys. This could be, I want to live on my own for once, or I want to get a dog, I would encourage you to get an animal. They help you get up and out of your house. And that is fucking important when we feel depressed. We need to get out and dogs need to be walked. And that's why I always recommend dogs. I know there's a lot of cat people out there. They're like, how dare you? But cats don't need to be walked. <laughs> it's it's great. It's what's great about kitties. They It is helpful even if you aren't a dog person and prefer to get a cat. It's They still rely on you and that's important, but dogs need You up and out. You have to walk them multiple times. And that is the the magic, right? Because we have to put on our shoes. We have to get up. We have to walk out that door. We're often in sunlight. So we're getting some vitamin D. Even if it's cold, the sun is usually out. That's good for us. Makes us all moving our body. The exercise is good. It's like it's a win-win-win there. So getting a dog is great. But fanning the flame of that little thing that is exciting for us. Like, I'm trying to think of other examples other than that one. That's just the one that bubbled up in my head first. But let's say we have always, oh, even, okay, for instance, when Harry Potter was coming out in the movies, I don't know if it was the movies or the books, but either way, let's just say it was the movies hadn't all been released. One of my clients was a huge Potterhead, you know, just like me, and couldn't, didn't, you know, that was a little thing. I was looking forward to seeing that last movie. So, there's that. Anything. No judgments. What is what are things that you're looking forward to or something that you really want to be there for? Or some someone that you think would be disappointed if you're gone? I'll even take that. That works for a lot of my patients too. Is like, is do you think someone that you care about would be hurt by this? You know, then focus on that. Find that's a little spark. And then we're gonna fan the flame of like, what could we do to reach out to them? Should we talk to them more since they are so important to us? Are there ways that we can mend that relationship? You know. I don't know. It's just finding that small spark and fanning the flame. And so we have to find some things, some goals, some things we're looking forward to, even other people's things and focus on that. What are we living for? What's the thing? And I know your depression wants to tell you, well, there is no thing. Shut up. This is stupid. I don't, I. this is all wrong. This isn't going to help. Nothing's going to get better. It wants to just take everything. We don't have to believe it we don't have to live in this prison. We can let ourselves out. We can, like my encouragement for you, because you feel like at rock bottom and it's really terrible. I would encourage you to see a psychiatrist immediately and get on medication. I know medication doesn't work for everybody and some people hate it and aren't are opposed to it, but it's a life raft to pull us out of this dark pit that we don't think, you know, that we're fallen into essentially, and we don't know how to get out let medication be that life raft that pulls your head above water enough that you're like, oh, I guess life, there is good in the world. Things could maybe get better. Maybe I'm open to the fact that life isn't total shit. That's really, I mean, that would be what I would do first with my clients would be to send them to a psychiatrist and get them assessed and get them treated so that, they start to feel better. And I'd also probably put them on like, you know, a safety plan and checking in and asking if they need more, you know, frequent sessions and all of that stuff. So that's, that's really, that's my advice. Got to find that little spark. You got to fan that flame and medication is there for a reason. It helps us. And so that's, that's how I encourage people. And I, you know, there's a lot of homework along with that. Like if there is a little flame of something, then maybe we collage about it. Maybe we tell a story about it. Maybe we journal about it. Maybe we, you know, reach out to that friend or family member or whatever. And those are all ways that we can keep going. Because trust me when I tell you, it does get better. Depression and anxiety, it's our mind playing tricks on us. Yes, it's a mental, it's an illness, right? It's like, Uh, I guess a good example would be like, you know, when you're really, really sick, you have like a flu and a cough or something, or you just feel terrible, and it's hard to get out of bed. And you're like, man, what I wouldn't give to just feel kind of normal today. Like I took it, I took it for granted all those time. You're just sick right now. And you took it for granted when you felt better, right? And we were like, oh, this feels terrible. When is this going to be over? And when we don't see an over, because with a cold, we're like, oh, I think it will just get better. You know, this is why chronic illness runs into mental illness so often is because we just don't feel well and we don't see a way out. It's back into exactly what you're experiencing. We're like, it doesn't, it can't get any better. But it does, right? We know things pass. We know there's better ways to treat things. There are things we can do. Reach out if you can't reach out on your own, maybe you text a friend and ask if they will. I know that it's hard to do anything, but sometimes we just have to take that first step, even though I know it's a fucking hard one. Reach out to someone to assist you to get the support that you need because it gets better. It's just clouding your brain, it's like that sickness it just makes us feel terrible for a while, but it does get better. We just need the proper treatment. we just need the proper support so Anyway, that's, that's, it. I don't want to ramble too long, but that, those are my thoughts on that. Okay. Question number five. Oh, my nose is itching. It says, do therapists lie whether they experience a similar event or feeling to reassure clients? Do they make up harmless stories like they were bullied too to make clients feel heard? Maybe not lying, but exaggerating. Do they put on a personality depending on the client's needs? And it's more than just being professional. I feel like my therapist is abnormally like me. Same life story, outlook on different topics, mental health problems, anxiety. This is a great question. And it's funny to me. Because I don't actually know the answer. I can tell you my experience and from what I know from my colleagues. But the truth is, no, we don't lie. I may tell people, like I've told patients in the past I'm like don't worry I've heard this before it's totally normal even though it's a new thing for me because I don't want them to feel marginalized or like something about them is weird I will do that I'll normalize but that's part of being a therapist we do a ton of validation a ton of normalizing so that you feel safe and heard and held so I guess you could say that that stuff is kind of like exaggerations or lying in a in a caring way question mark um but we do do that and I, I will all fess up to that. I've done that before, and I would do it again because I want people to feel comfortable. I want them to feel heard, and I want them to feel understood. However, I would never say I experienced anything. First of all, sharing a lot about myself, I don't do that. And I don't really think it's very ethical for a therapist to share too much about their personal story. And so them having the same life story and mental health problems, anxiety, that's a little too much for me. I don't actually like that. I think that's a little bit of a boundary crossing because it's your time. It's not their time. If they need to talk to someone about their anxiety or their life story, they should go to their own therapy. Well, that's just my two cents. So lying about that, no. A ther- I can't imagine a therapist lying about that. A therapist could like outlook on different topics. Like I, especially right now, um, I mean, most people don't talk about like politics, let's say in therapy. But if a patient brought it up, I would never tell them I thought differently. I would just go along with them because it's not about me. And if a patient asked, do you agree with that? I, I would ask, is it important if I do or what if I didn't? Like, what would, what would that mean to you? I'd just be more curious about the question because again, it's that therapist, like we reflect it back because it's not about us. This isn't my time to tell you that I agree or disagree with that prop that's up on the ballot or whatever. Um, so yeah, I hope that answers your question because I don't make up harmless stories. I don't lie about experiences I've had but I do definitely like reassure my patients by saying that it's normal that I've seen it before even if I haven't. And a lot of times also even if I say oh yeah that's very common it's because I know it is I just haven't personally had it you know had a patient who struggled with it but yeah I guess that's that's an interesting question though and I don't really know if other people do it or not but I do know that like you know other colleagues that I work with have similar outlooks as me based on the things, you know, we've talked about other patient issues and stories because I'm in that, I don't, I think I've told you guys I'm part of that group where we talk about difficult cases and it's part of my, it's really consultation. We call it a journal club, it's consultation. And so they do much of what I do in that way. But that's an interesting question. And I would love if any of you listening are mental health professionals I would love to hear what you do if you do make up harmless stories or if you do do things like that because I I don't but no judgments you know I that it's interesting I never thought about it I just most of what I do is reflect back to my patients and and ask them you know because if they ask questions about me also you guys just FYI if a patient asks questions about me and wants to know something about like where I grew up or uh, do you have kids. These seem like simple questions but they're usually not. They're usually born out of some kind of defense mechanism or a difficulty with boundaries and attachment issues. And so my response is is usually something to the effect of like like I said earlier like what would it mean if I had children or didn't have children? Would that be important for you? Do you feel like I couldn't understand? you know, and I'll ask those kinds of questions. And where does that come from? Because I've had people, I remember back in the day when I first started practicing, a lot of patients would ask me how old I was. And I would say, I'm curious why age is important to you. You know, you have to reflect back. That was what I was taught. And maybe people would disagree with what I do, but that's that's how I was taught. That's been really effective for me keeping boundaries around my, you know patient client relationships, making sure that they are healthy and it's not a, they don't know much about me because that keeps it more, it's more about them. And yeah, I still just think that's best. So you even knowing that much about your therapist is a little, a little worrisome to me, but that's not the question. I don't lie. I guess that's the answer. (laughs) Okay. Question number six, do therapists test you outside of your appointment? Interesting. Is that part of their job? For example, when you meet them before session, and they say sorry for being late because of traffic, do they pay attention to how you react? Are you empathic? Maybe you don't really care. Maybe you're on the side of the drivers. Do they analyze your body language from the second you meet them? I'm not trying to think about that. So I can, um, I'm trying not to think about that so that I can act more naturally either way. I'm just curious. I'm hoping the answer is yes, because they get more information about me that way. But I get it that they need to relax outside of sessions. For the most part, we do not test you outside of your appointment, but we uh, something that I, I recognized I do all the time with patients is I look for any kind of it's not really whether you're on the side of the drivers, you're empathic or not, but we, we're absorbing your behaviors. So it's like if, for instance, if a patient is super anxious and on edge about the fact that I'm running late because that's happened to me. Like, I've shown up to my office thinking it'd be open, right? Like, I even went out for lunch once, I remember, because um, I had an eating disorder patient. I would go eat with her, and that was like we would do a quick wrap up, and we came back and she'd gone. Like, the session was over. I came back to my office and they'd locked the doors because I, I share with two other uh, mental health professionals, two other therapists. And the door was locked, and my patient was standing there, and they're like, Did you just get in to work? And they seemed very anxious and stressed. I still had five minutes before session, but they like to get there early. And I do absorb that. Like I pay attention. I'm like, oh, I should ask about some anxiety symptoms. This seems to be very stressful, very overwhelming for her. The fact that I was running a little bit, not even late, but like she didn't get to sit in there like she likes to and read the magazines maybe or whatever, right? And so we do acknowledge and pay attention to all of your behaviors and things that you say and do so that I can learn more about you. Because especially... When your defenses are down, because in therapy, there's something funny about therapy where you come into the office and your defenses sometimes automatically go up. Like, I don't want to talk about this. I'm not going to make eye contact. I'm going to try to make a joke here because this is uncomfortable. Everything is out and we're uncomfortable. So, but when we're outside of the session, like when I catch you in the hallway because my office was locked we have a little bit of this like quote unquote normal human to human interaction and your defenses usually aren't up as quickly. And so you can see things that maybe you can't see in the office. So I do pay attention to it, but I'm not testing. There's no testing. The testing comes with like homework where it's like, were you able to do this or not? And it's kind of just me challenging you. I want want to get you to a point where you feel challenged, but not like triggered or overwhelmed or re-traumatized or any of that. And so yeah, that's, that's what we do. And I don't really know if that's part of our job. I think it's kind of part of our training and how we maximize our time with you and maximize, I guess, gather the most evidence, for lack of a better term. You know me, I love detective stories. So it's like we're trying to gather evidence so we can help you best. And not everybody is forthcoming with how they are and what they think and feel and all of that. And so, yeah, we analyze your body language and look for patterns. I think that's the biggest thing about being a therapist is you look for patterns of behavior. And it, at first it's, it might be kind of tricky for people to understand, but it's, you'll start to see even patterns in your own life. Like I know when I'm doing something again, that like, isn't healthy for me, but it's like a pattern that I do when I get stressed out, for instance, like I will, I'm trying to think of what I do when I'm really stressed out. I tend to cry randomly and then I lash out at people. So I get really irritable, but I'll withdraw from people who could actually help me. Mm. It's very healthy. You guys, I'm just kidding. But I recognize when I withdraw, when people reach out and I don't want to reply, I'm like, you got to do this. You got to, you got to reach out to your therapist. You got to figure this fuck this shit out. It's messing with you. So I'll push myself to do that so that I don't get to the point where I'm like crying all the time and irritable. Do you know what I mean? It's like, we kind of, I look for patterns, in my patients so that they can get to the point where they can recognize them in themselves and do the homework that we did, you know, years ago, maybe that worked so that I'm like arming them for the future to feel better for the future. Um, Okay. I think that is, I think I've answered everything. Do they pay attention? Yes, we pay attention, but we don't really test you and all that jazz. Okay. Question number seven says, Hi, Katie. I hope you're having a happy day. I had a wonderful day today. I'm curious about your experience with patients working through complex PTSD or CPTSD. Do you feel like it's generally a slow progression of healing with people becoming a little less uh, symptomatic here and there over time? Or do you ever see people have a sudden lifting of most of their symptoms? About how often do you see people totally overcome their complex PTSD? Can you tell I really want to overcome CPTSD? Thank you so much for all you do. This is a great question. And, and they got a lot of likes, obviously, they all, they all did. But people had a lot of, you know, empathy and understanding and agreed. I have never seen someone all of a sudden lift their symptoms. I have experienced that with a couple of patients who did EMDR where we just couldn't together get through a certain memory or a certain scenario, or we couldn't even recall, maybe like there was some repressed memories in there and they were all scattered and we were having trouble making a timeline or making sense of them. And then they go to EMDR and it's like, boom, it's so much better after maybe like six or eight sessions or something. That's about like as quick as I've seen some symptoms lift or some sudden shift, but it is little by little better. And then the thing about recovery from things like this and like processing complex trauma is it's not this like linear, I know we want it to be like A to B to C to D and I'm all better, boof. And, you know, we want it just to get better. It's like this weird ziggy, zaggy, I'm going up and I'm going back and then I'm making a little progress and we're making progress, but we're going to have setbacks along the way. We're going to feel like shit for a little bit and then we're going to get a little better. It's just not as, it's not, you know, A to B to C to D. It's like all over the place, like a big squiggly line. And so I hear you. I wish it could move faster. I know so many people in our community and my patients alike have thought, you know, they're so annoyed with their progress. I wish I was going faster. Why is this taking so long? I've been processing this memory for like three months and it shouldn't take this long and blah, blah, blah. It's okay. I just want you to hear this. You didn't you didn't all of a sudden have complex PTSD. Complex PTSD means you've had like repeated traumas throughout your life. And so much so that it's it's hard for you to like trust that there's good in the world, we can have suicidal thoughts, we can uh, feel... Very sensitive to the outside world, like no one cares about us. We can struggle with a lot of shame where we think we're really broken, we can never get better. There's a lot going on there and it didn't happen overnight, so it's not going to get better overnight. It's something that kind of built up over time, and we have to uncover all of that and like clean it out. And I'm not saying that it can't be some you will feel like you're making progress. And so what I would encourage all of you to do out there, if you're feeling like your treatment is taking way too long, and you feel like you should be moving faster ask your therapist to go back in their notes about, let's say six months. And maybe a year because COVID's all crazy and who knows what's happening. But have them go back in their notes and read what you were working on and how you were doing. That will blow your fucking mind. You'll be like, oh my God, I forgot how bad it used to be and how much progress I've made. And if you need your therapist to do this every few months, that's okay. I think that's great. I think it's important for therapists as part of working with you to talk you through all the progress you've made so that you stay motivated, so that you feel empowered, so that you know it's getting better. So ask them to do that because that will really, really help. It will help show you just how far you've already come. I know it's hard and it does take time. It's a slow progression of healing and there will be setbacks, but it does get better little by little. It's just like putting one foot in front of the other. And I wish I had a better answer. I wish I was like, no, just do this magic treatment, eat this magic bean and you'll be better. But That's just not how life is. And that would be fucking awesome. If anybody wants to create that magic bean, I would love to purchase them. But for the way that it works, it just, it just takes time. It's a slow progression. It's a slow healing. And a lot of it's like fighting that shame, fighting that, the embarrassment and all the things that come along with trauma. It can be very complicated. So be patient with yourself and ask to see where you're at. Sorry, my nose is just not stopping itching maybe there's like a floof on my microphone. Anyway, ask your therapist to walk you back and talk about those things because you'll be blown away. Okay. Question number eight. Hi, Katie. How can I learn to communicate my anger? Great question. Growing up, I learned to never be angry. Oh, again, with the nose because my parents often got loud and I still get a lot of anxiety around people whenever there's a confrontation or people shout at each other. I feel uncomfortable around most men because of it as well, because I fear that they will get angry. Being in therapy, I struggle to see whenever I'm angry at my therapist until after the session. And then I turn my anger on myself. And um, and if I'm in a bad place, I self-harm because I'm so angry at myself, that I can't stop this emotion because I shouldn't get angry. Hmm. That's an interesting Interesting judgment there. I shouldn't get angry. Why shouldn't you? I'm curious. You tell me. I also feel very guilty whenever I'm able to communicate it to my therapist in fear that she'll shout at me and will terminate me, no matter how often she tells me that she won't. She won't. Just trust me. Do you have any advice on how I can handle these situations better? Okay, and there's a follow-up that was in the comments below it, but let me answer this component first. Because communicating anger is really uncomfortable for a lot of us because of what we think it means it can feel very out of control what I would encourage you to do instead of feeling like you have to learn how to communicate your anger like I have to know how to do this I would encourage you to get to know your anger and I know that that seems like a small shift but it's a very important shift because we don't have if we don't understand it how the fuck can we tell someone what we think and feel about it we can't It'd be like me never, ever, ever, uh, what, what would be the thing? Never, ever having cooked a pancake. I'm just making shit up here. As you can tell, never cooked a pancake. And I don't even know how it works. And I don't even know how people even go about it. And then I'm supposed to tell somebody I'm supposed to communicate to someone else so that they can cook a pancake. That's never going to work. Never. So we have to learn about it first. And what I would encourage you to do is to first start by identifying, but not even identifying, that's probably not the right word. Let's start by having you describe how anger feels. How does it feel in your body? What are some thoughts that come up around that? Do you find yourself clenching your teeth or your fist? Do you get overheated? How do you feel? Write about it. Use all your five senses if you can. I know you might not have like a taste or something, but I'm just saying, use use your senses, dive into it. How does it feel to be angry? Can we use the word anger in a sentence that doesn't, like, by des- I, not using the word anger in a sentence, but using other words to describe it? Does that make sense? I'm not saying that very clearly. But instead of using the word anger, for instance, or let's say the word is is happy, because I don't want to give anything away. I want you to do the work. So if happy is the word that I'm trying to describe, I would say, you know, I can I feel very light and I'm almost excited, but it's, it's like I can't stop myself from smiling. Okay, that's happy. I just described it to you. Do that for anger. Try different words. Try different descriptors so that you can express and better understand what it's like for you specifically, because everyone experiences anger differently. And I want you to kind of get to know it And then I think I would take it a step further and have you do some kind of collage about it. And I've talked about this before too, but like a feelings collage where you write anger out, like I would encourage you to get a big red marker or Sharpie or crayon or something and write anger, like all caps, right in the middle of this sheet of paper. Or if you have more, like get a bigger piece if you can. And then write all the words that come up for you with regard to anger, just free association. There's no judgment. It doesn't even matter what comes up. It might You might even be surprised what comes up. Because if you're thinking anger, you could be like, uh, traffic, right? It could be someone we're mad at, a friend or a family member, uh, you write their names down. And then it could be like tension, shout, you know, cry. I don't know, right? All the things that come up for you and keep adding to it until you feel like it represents it for you. That's another way to figure out what what anger's like. Because then once we know only then can we try to communicate it to others. Because by getting to know our anger, the goal of this really is just to give you like an insight into what I'm thinking. So the goal of this is to be able to get you to track it so that when you start to feel angry before you're irate or want to shout or anything, I want you to notice it first. So you could say, hopefully in the future, without being overly emotional or overly angry, where then we kind of lose our head and we can't communicate. I want you back earlier in that process. I want you to be able to say, yeah, that, that kind of was upsetting to me that you said it that way. That makes it sound like I'm to blame and I find that hurtful. We're able to communicate it to them. So by learning about it and understanding what anger feels like for us, getting to know it. And then another step and something that my therapist had me do, which was horrible and I hated it, but it was very beneficial is finding healthy ways to express it. So while we're learning about it, you'll probably find things coming up for you. Now, I don't like anger any more than any of you. It's super uncomfortable, feels out of control. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. People, please are here. It's very bad. So in order to get me to a place where I can express anger and I can tell someone, hey, that hurt my feelings or that was upsetting, um, that made me angry because anger tells us something. It's protective. It's important. It's a great emotion to have and we need to have it but I would try to find ways to express it. So one of the things that really benefited me, screaming in a pillow, writing nasty letters and tearing them up, singing angry songs very loudly in my car, uh, kicking a ball into a wall. There's like a school not far from here and it has like a brick wall and you can just kick and kick and kick a soccer ball over and over and over. Maybe you want to play squash. I don't know. There's other things we can do, but physically, oh, one of my girlfriends used to love uh, kickboxing. Maybe give that a go. So finding ways to healthfully express it, whatever works for you, try it out. That's helpful too. And so that's really the answer. And then handling the situations with your therapist, just talking to them about it, telling them you want to get to know, you know, your anger because you feel like it just comes out of nowhere and it it erupts and you don't want to hurt their feelings, you know, express it, talk about it. I think instead of trying to say, how can I handle these situations better? Because that means that there's judgment. There's judgment about how you handled it. And you didn't do a good job. And it, again, it's like the anger in, you're already pointing it in when you're like, how can I handle these situations better? You know how you can actually do do a great job at this is just bringing it up with your therapist and saying, I feel like I shouldn't get angry. I feel like I don't have permission to be angry. And then I erupt. And then I say things or do things in ways that I don't feel good about, or I'm angry at you and I'm afraid you're going to leave and talk about it. It's okay. It's all a process. The real goal of this is just for you to get to know your anger. So there's not so much judgment around it because growing up, it wasn't okay. So you never had the time where a lot of children who grew up in households where anger was often expressed or healthfully expressed, like we didn't get that. So we have to learn. And that's how we, that's what we're doing now. We're going to explore. We're going to learn about our anger. We're going to figure out how it feels and how we can better manage it. And I promise you, it will slowly get better. And then, The other follow-up part to this in the comments said, would love it if you would also add to express anger and irritation in a healthy way to a partner who has no problem expressing anger and irritation themselves, but seems to think that either my manner of expression is too much, or maybe they just can't handle it, that I sometimes am angry and not just either happy or depressed. I've been in this relationship for a while, but I still haven't figured this out. Again, not to like go back to the same thing, but we have to get to know our anger. And what I would have you do in this particular question is, Ask them. You it sounds like you don't actually even understand or know why they're they don't take it very well. Ask them for clarification. The worst thing we can do in relationships is make assumptions and think that we can read people's minds or that they can read ours. There's no superpowers here, you guys. We can't do that. So we need to talk to them. We need to ask them, hey, you know, you've act like or you know, you could say even better, let's <clears throat> let's really therapize this. You can say, I love you. And I want to get better at communicating when I'm upset so that I don't like lash out or act in passive aggressive ways. I'm really working on that. And I've noticed in the past that sometimes the way I've expressed myself, it wasn't received very well by you. And I just wonder if you could tell me what I'm doing that is upsetting. Let them tell you, figure it out. And meanwhile, we need to get to know our anger. We need to get to recognize it earlier so we don't erupt later. And so because anger and irritation are important. They are part of everyone's life. Getting to know our anger and learning to express it doesn't make it, it doesn't make the go away. So we'll never have anger again. Oh, got that off my chest. Phew, so much better. No, it just means that we will be better able to talk about it, express it in a way that is received well, so that we can communicate it, so that we can all learn how to do better. And anger will keep happening, unfortunately. Irritability will come and go. We will get upset at people, but we will be able to say it without losing our head and without acting in passive aggressive ways. Assuming that we can read their minds, they can read ours. That all just leads us down this path of like destruction and and bad relationships. And so, by getting to know our anger, being able to express it, and it takes work. I still struggle to to tell Sean when I'm upset without like getting mad already but I've been doing it. I've just been saying, Hey, that, that was kind of hurtful. And sometimes I'll say it a couple times. He's like, I hear you. And I'm like, I know, I just don't feel like I fully express what I feel. So I'm going to try it one more time. And he's like, okay, because you need to get it out. You need to feel like you've said what you need to say. And if that's not enough, you need to figure out why that's not enough. What is it about? Is it old anger? Is it things? Cause the thing that's very common for me personally, is it because I sucked at it for so long, there's sometimes this buildup. And I personally have to decide to like process that in my own, like journal, write it out, tear it up, and let it go. Because they can't help me about things. You can't change the past. I can talk about it and he can apologize, but then I have to make the decision to move on. So anyways, just throwing that out there. I hope that's helpful. And getting to know our anger is important and really, really helpful. But get clarification. Don't assume that you know why why they're not receiving your expression of anger very well. Okay, question number nine. Hi, Katie. Why do painful memories trigger self-harm urges? I've recently been trying to process painful memories from my childhood, and it's making me want to self-harm after not doing it for over a month. Any thoughts would be appreciated. Thanks for all you do. Of course, of course. And someone else said same, but with eating disorder behaviors, and I can knock these both out. And there was a comment on this that was, they knew what I was going to say. Some of you listen and you learn and it's amazing. And you're, you're, you as a community, sorry, I'm now I'm totally taking a detour. But as a community, you guys are fucking awesome. You assist each other, you offer the advice and resources and things that you know, I would say because you've been watching for a long time and you've been paying attention. And for the newbies and the people who maybe haven't been watching for very long or forgot something that we say, because we're human, hello it's really helpful. And so you guys are amazing. Amazing, amazing. Uh, So thank you so much for all that. Now to the question, painful memories trigger self-harm urges because self-harm is a coping skill. It's a way for us to numb out. uh, For instance, I'll give like, okay, when when it comes to self-injury, our, when we do that when we engage in self-injurious behavior it forces our body into kind of like a fight flight freeze response I know it doesn't feel like that but it our, it when we're injured our body goes into kind of it's not like defcon 5 but it's it's like oh my god something's wrong okay and it's a distraction all we get all these like we can get endorphins sometimes or adrenaline and our body is like, amped, it feels energized to take care of the the wound, to fix it, to heal it, to whatever. It also like uh, can give us a little shot of energy, right? Adrenaline does that, like, ooh, and then we can feel better. But then it's very short-lived. If you've ever engaged in any kind of unhealthy self-injuries behavior, like even doing drugs and drinking, right? It, you, There's a come down and that, that fucking sucks. So a self-injury and eating disorder behavior is even shorter lived. It's like, I'd give it a good, like, 20 minutes, maybe. Um, I'm sure you guys all have different amounts of time, but in my experience, 20 minutes, maybe an hour, that's where I'm going to max out. Because then my patients will say, well, then I just felt really guilty and bad about the fact that I've done that and I didn't want to do it. And there's all those thoughts, right? So when we have painful memories come up and we don't know how to cope, we use self-injury, right? We get that spike. Poof, I start to feel better. Same with eating disorders. Oh, I am so uncomfortably full. Guess what? Can't think about anything else ta magically the problem is gone. Spoilers, it's not gone. We just numbed out for a little bit. And then now we have another thing to deal with. And that's why I always tell people, thank your self-harm and your eating disorders and your alcoholism and drug addiction for getting you through that really shit time. The trauma, the upset, the pain that you had, the situation you couldn't get out of for a while, it got you through, helped you survive. But now, it's like we're trying to use this survival technique when things are, are okay and we're safe and it doesn't serve us anymore. It's not helpful. It's actually holding us back and stopping us from processing and feeling better. And so we have to let it go. Now it's unhealthy. At the time, it was unhealthy too. I'm not trying to say that there's any time where those types of behaviors are good for us. However, they were a survival technique. We had no other coping skills, no other way to deal. And that's how we dealt. It got us through thank you. We high five it, we send it off into the sea because it doesn't serve us anymore. And it's actually holding us back and hindering us. So that's why they're there. That's why they're coming up because of the painful memories, especially from childhood. It's a trigger. And what we need to do is come up with other coping skills again back this kind of the theme this there is a theme this week. It's all about coping skills. The coping skills video that I have the 25 coping skills, look that up and watch it. I think it will help and come up with five coping skills that we're going to try instead of our self-injury, actually engaging in self-harm behaviors or eating disorder behaviors. Because unfortunately, it takes five to to like overdo the one. And people will always tell me, you know, those coping skills, they don't feel as good. That's not what we're trying to get at. Nothing's going to feel as good. I'm so sorry. But our body doesn't just dump all those chemicals that I was just talking about and make us feel energized and mobilized. And, you know, we get this shot of feel, good feeling. It doesn't do that when we're doing something that's, you know, that's supposed to help us process what we're feeling. It does that. And that's the reason that we get caught in that cycle of wanting to do it because it, it does feel good for that little bit of time, but we have to fight back because it doesn't get us anywhere we want to be. And that's where impulse logs can come in. That's one of those coping skills. Like, what's the thing I want to do? I want to, I want to self-injure you know, what just happened to cause it? What's the emotion I'm trying to express? What could I do instead? And what was the result? You know, there's like impulse logs we can do. I have one that I put in my book that's coming out next year. So that, those are my thoughts about that. It's a coping skill. We don't know how else to cope and that's why it brings them up. But fighting back using other healthy coping skills will make them go away. I promise. Okay. Final question. Question number 10 says, Katie, I've always romanticized death. My whole life has been about running away from everything and escaping. I want to change that. I think I don't know how to live. I feel so lost and disoriented. I feel like other people know something about life that I don't. And it makes me feel so left out and incapable. What are the first things that I should do now that I, oh, that I should do now that I'm choosing life? I'm trying to pursue things, but I find myself frozen in terror. I guess I would go back, not to give you the same answer from another question, but kind of that uh, back to what I was talking about getting the spark back. So I'm glad you're choosing life. That's amazing. That's difficult. And I'm really proud of you. But we're going to have to like get that little spark and we're gonna have to fan the flame. So I would want you to start journaling about the things you're looking forward to, things you want to do, hopes, dreams, let's live in this exciting, amazing feeling. Let's do this. What are the things that you want to do and you're looking forward to and things you want to be part of or goals you have in your life? Write those down. And then let's work back from those. Let's make smaller little goals. I think that could really help you. I'd even put up your list of the things that you really want out of life. Meaning, let's say you're wanting to live on your own, or you're wanting to finish school, or you're wanting to make a new friend, or you're wanting to you know, get a better job or I don't know. There's all sorts of things that we could want. You're wanting to do better at your job or make a friend at work or wanting to reorganize our house or I don't know, there could be a bunch of learn how to cook a thing that you're, you know, a pot roast. I don't know. I'm just making things up. But have some of those goals and put them up where you see them every day. So every day you're like, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm living for. That's what I'm, I'm focused on. And also I think gratitude could go a long way. But let me hold on, I want to read this question again because I feel like I'm getting off on off topic onto something that they're not really asking for because so I feel like other people know something about life that I don't they don't don't worry we all we're all just doing our best here, and it makes me feel so left out and incapable. okay, so put the goals, and then my next goal for you is to pick out let's do two to three negative thoughts that you have, and I want you to bridge statement those. Move those into more pos- a more positive place. Meaning, you feel like you're incapable, you're left out. People, I don't know something about life. Like I'm stupid. People know things I don't know. There's all those negative thoughts already, in this judgment that I see in the question. And I want you to pull those those thoughts and beliefs that you have, and I want you to argue back against them. Come up with a bridge statement where you're like, you know, it's possible that it's just a crapshoot, and nobody else knows anything about life. We they just like pretend better than I do. They're better actors. Because trust me, nobody knows shit about life. We're all just like trying to figure this thing out. So that's what I would I would start and look for evidence to support a more positive thought. So if we want, once we're kind of moving in that bridge statement land of like, uh, maybe nobody knows anything about life, let's look for evidence that other people are fucking up too. the evidence is everywhere. You can just use me as an example things aren't always good for me either. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just trying to figure it out. I'm using my knowledge to do it the best way I can. But a lot of times it just doesn't work out and that's okay. I still act in passive aggressive ways. I still yell at Sean for things that aren't important that I shouldn't be yelling at him about. I don't see my therapist as often as I should sometimes. It took me six months to get in last time I went in and I knew I needed to go in. Shame, shame on me, right? I don't know what I'm doing either. Don't feel like people know we're just acting. We just act better like we do, I guess. I don't know. So challenge those thoughts. Use some of the bridge statements and look for look for evidence to support the opposite of those thoughts. So even if you can just do the opposite thought, you don't have to believe it. But I want you to come up with that opposite thought. So if the thought is I'm left out or I'm incapable, so the opposite would be I'm capable. I'm good. I could do so much shit. Look at me. I'm so amazing. Even if you don't believe that thought, I don't care. But I want you to look for evidence that shows that you're capable. Okay? Did you get up? Did you make it to work on time or get in front of the Zoom call on time? Did you shower? Have you fed yourself? Did you like procure food in some fashion, whether it was delivered or you cooked it or you got whatever? It's pretty capable. Are you able to like pay your bills? It's pretty capable. There's a lot of things. So I want you to start digging in. I want you to look for that evidence because otherwise we will always just look for that way out and we'll always talk down to ourselves and we'll never feel like we, it's not even that, like we belong. Like belonging is so important to feel like we can be ourselves and we can be accepted is really powerful. And I want you to get to that point. And so I really think that, you know, uh, finding that evidence, getting those goals or even just the great things you're grateful for could be something that I would have you put up. So you see it all the time. Those are all ways that we can slowly because we have to like deprogram ourselves. I think that's something that people don't talk enough about is when we get into therapy and we start working on ourselves, we're really deprogramming the things we've been doing prior to doing that therapy work. And it's hard. It's uncomfortable and it takes work, right? We're making that new rut. If we're talking about that marble in that balloon, you know, the balloon filled with sand, that is our brain. It's difficult, and we have to constantly like coax it back. No, 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 go this way. So just be patient with yourself. Stay the course. You will start to feel better. Just don't allow those thoughts to hang and spend any more time in your brain. They're doing you a disservice. They're, you know, they're only hurting you and holding you back when you have a life to live, an exciting, wonderful life, and you get to get it. And we don't need it telling us garbage. I hope that that helps. I hope all those answers were helpful. Thank you so much for sending them in. Thank you so much for watching are listening and doing all the things um if you feel so inclined please leave a nice review about the podcast give us the five stars and the nice you know hopefully nice hopefully it's helpful share it with people ask the more we can get to watch and listen the better i love you so much work. have a wonderful week and i will see you next time about Bye. esteem or why your feelings hurt you can ask her why suck or why you've hit a plateau Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know, ask Katie.